Together, turn in your Bibles this morning, please, to Genesis chapter 14. We are going to look at both chapters 14 and 15 this morning. Don't worry, there's a, there's a lot to cover, but a lot of it is a, kind of sections of, of a, concepts. So Genesis chapter 14, uh, this morning, rather than beginning to read in verse 1, we're actually going to pick it up in verse 18 and read down to verse 24 as our introduction this morning. Genesis chapter 14, picking it up in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anner, Eskal, and Mamre, let them take their portion. God, please add to the reading of your word, the blessing of your Holy Spirit, and may we just take in this morning all that you have for us as we study these two amazing passages of Scripture. Open our hearts, Lord, to receive the fullness that you give to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. When you enroll in the school of faith, you never know what may happen next. Visit Abram one day and you find him setting a boundary, settling a boundary dispute. Visit him another day and you see him gearing up for a battle. Why is this? For one thing, God wants us to mature in every area of life, but maturity doesn't come easily. There can be no growth without challenge, and there can be no challenge without change. If circumstances never changed, everything would be predictable. And the more predictable life becomes, the less challenge it presents. You see, challenge and change are two things that God is abundant with in our lives, isn't he? And so as we come into this continuing story of Abram this morning, chapter 14, we begin by reading in uh, the first few verses that Abram encounters some kings, nine kings to be specific. And as he encountered these kings, uh, they made war with uh, five against four. And these all joined together in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. In 12 years, they served Chedorlaomer. And in the 13th year, they rebelled. So we have right here in the Bible the first mention of war with these nine kings coming against each other, five against four. And we find that these kings were from that region of the Middle East that we know pretty much as Babylon, Iraq, and Iran. The confederacy here consisted of the kings of Shinar from Babylonia, Elisar, the leading tribe in southern Babylonia, Elam, the original kingdom of Persia, and Goim, 
translated nations, but probably a tribe of northeastern Babylonia. So in verse 5, we find in the 14th year of Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, uh, Karnaim, the Zumin in Ham, uh, the Emmon in Shavath, Kirathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. So as we go through this here and we read these kinds of things, we read the genealogies, we read uh, this account of what was happening in Abram's life as he was dwelling there and trying to you know, just follow the Lord and listen to his voice, this war formed in the area where Abram was living. Now remember, Abram had left Egypt and gone back to Canaan and was dwelling there and waiting upon the Lord and just listening for his voice. And remember that the area of Canaan was a very wicked place. It was a place where idolatry was rampant. It was a place where really no one worshiped the Lord except Abram and his family. Now it's interesting, one person said, in the Bible, historical facts are often windows for spiritual truth. And that's what happens here this morning. As we read all of these names here, these names, many of them have great significance to what was happening during the time when this battle took place. And uh, what happened is these kings had come together. Uh, many of them had served under a tribute to one king for a period of 12 years. Then in the 13th year, some of them became um, anxious and rebelled. And that's what created this uh, confederacy of uh, five against four. And this war kind of arose just out of just a rebellion against the one king who was ruling over the area. But these names kind of define for us what was happening. So for example, <clears throat> the name Ashtaroth Karnaim means place of two horns. And the actual denotation there is actually referring to something evil. So you kind of get the idea of two horns coming out of a beast. And then we find also within that name, Ashtaroth Karnaim, uh, Ashtaroth Astarte Ishtar, which refers to the moon goddess, the goddess of sensual love, and the worship of gross immorality. So these things were taking place in that area where Abram and his family and his whole clan lived. And then we find the Zumin mentioned, and most commentators believe that these are the same as the, the tribe mentioned as the Zamzumin later in the book of Deuteronomy. The, the word Zamzumin means powerful ones and the word Zumin means roving creatures. So you sort of get a sense of the identities of these people who have come in battle against one another. And the picture we're getting is that the rulers, these, these kings that have come and uh, taken up war against each other, and I really see this very much as a picture of what's happening in our world today. The nations are rising up. People are getting anxious. And we were just talking this morning earlier as we were getting ready about the fact that as we look out across the world and even across our region, people are hopeless. People are anxious. I don't know if you see it, but don't, as you go out and about, don't you see a lot of anger in people? People who are into wearing masks and you know, think this is the, the, the right thing to do in terms of you know, doing our part to prevent the spread of coronavirus. When they see people not wearing masks, they're angry. The people who think the whole thing is a hoax 
and a conspiracy theory, they're not wearing masks and they're angry at the people who are wearing masks, right? So we have these two ends of the spectrum and you can see it when you walk down the aisle of the supermarket or wherever you go in a public place that this is true, isn't it? Because you see people giving other people dirty looks and they see the one-way arrows on the floor and the people walking down the aisle the separate way. All of this stuff happening, right? And, and that spirit in the world of anger toward one another and people of unrest and people who are just angry and they want their way and they believe their way is right. As we continue down these names, Emem, the terrible ones, Rephaim, the strong ones, Horites, cave dwellers. This almost sounds more like Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? And then they turned back and they came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazan Tamar. So En Mishpat was a place that meant spring or fountain of judgment. But it's interesting, Moses tells us in his commentary here that later the name was changed to Kadesh, and Kadesh means holy. So even there, God took a place that was unholy and turned it into a place that was holy. In verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in the valley of Siddim. So the word Sodom, in case you didn't know, means burnt or burning, kind of a prophetic name because we're gonna to come to that a little bit later in chapter 19. The name Gomorrah means submersion or ruinous heap. So again, prophetic name. The name Bela means destruction. The name Zoar means insignificant. And the Siddim was the area or the valley down by the plains of the Dead Sea. So in verse nine, they came out against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, the four kings against the five. So again, here are the names. Elam means eternity or hidden. Tidal, great sun. Amraphel, sayer of darkness. So you can see this, this submersive, subversive kind of spirit behind these names and between these kings and their wars. Ariok means like a lion, and Elisar means God is chastener. So this was the setting as these kings came together and they fought against one another. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother, brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods had departed. Note that Lot earlier, when we saw him as Lot left his uh, uncle Abram, earlier it says when, when Abram stood there and said, look and, and you choose, we talked about that last week, which way do you wanna go, Lot? And we saw that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. He went in that direction. And here we are today, some period of time later, we find that Lot had moved from the place of blessing under the, the care of his uncle Abram. Now he had moved out towards Sodom and now he's in Sodom. And so he had moved out from that place of blessing and security <clears throat> to a place where he was lured by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. 
And most commentators feel that Lot got a taste for this when they were down in Egypt. Remember when uh, Abram went down to Egypt, he had pretty much deviated from the plan of God. And while he was in Egypt, there was no record that he, of course, had worshiped the Lord there or built uh, an altar to the Lord or sought the voice of the Lord. But before he went, he was worshiping the Lord and building altars. While he was in Egypt, he didn't. After he came out of Egypt, he again built an altar unto the Lord and, and sought and listened for the voice of the Lord. Now, we never have recorded for us, for Lot, that he ever built an altar or worshiped. So that, I think, is very significant to us because now we find Lot, who was in a holy and a righteous household, now he's out on his own, and he's now wandered to a place that was far worse than Egypt was. He's now living in Sodom and Gomorrah. One person said this as we think about that, if you identify with the world, then expect to suffer what the world suffers. In other words, you can't play with fire and not get burned. God disciplines his children because he loves them and he wants the best for them. If we don't listen to his rebukes, then he has to get our attention some other way and that way is usually very painful. And so Lot now, as he had gone down to live in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the city of Sodom specifically, he now got caught up in this battle and he and his whole family, his whole tribe, his whole entourage was taken captive and all of the goods, everything that he had possessed, everything that God had blessed him with via his uncle Abram and everything that God had given to him so freely was now just snatched and taken from him because of his life choices. So verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, <clears throat> the Amorite uh, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So they came and they told to Abram, and this is the first time the word Hebrew is mentioned, and that Abram is referred to as a Hebrew. Verse 14, now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, Abram could have taken the position, rightly and righteously so, to say, you know what, Lot? You got yourself into this mess. And just let him suffer the consequences of his decision. But Abram was not that kind of a man. He was not vindictive he, or anything like that. He was not punitive in his outlook or in his nature. Instead, he said to himself, and we're told here that when he heard his brother was taken captive. And so that's how he thought of Lot. Even though Lot had made poor decisions, even though Lot had done things that were beyond unwise, that had crossed the line, certainly uh, ethically, if not morally, by moving very, uh, into the very center of uh, Sodom. And we find out later, as Lot goes back after this incident to the very place that he was rescued from, that he now is in the place of the city gate and a part of the elders. He's one of the men who is the a leader of the city. Nonetheless, Abram went in and uh, rescued him. He had his 318 servants that he had trained for battle. And here's the interesting thing. Abram lived in Canaan. 
And he had out of his household of about a thousand people, 318 men that he had trained for battle. Now, what's interesting as I, as I read this and as I began to think about it, <coughs> excuse me, this is really a bit like making disciples because Abram knew that the place where they lived and the time where they lived, that his servants had to be equipped. His, his servants had to have armor. They needed skills. They needed training because God had obviously abundantly blessed Abram. And where, wherever Abram went, except for Egypt, he built an altar and he worshiped the Lord and the Lord blessed him and the hand of God was evident upon Abram. And so Abram knew that people would want to come and to attack him and to plunder his goods and to take his, his, uh, his women and his children and all those things, that was a very real threat. So Abram counted the cost and he trained up these 318 servants. And you get the sense here as you read this that he trained them much as a person would be trained through a boot camp kind of a situation. <clears throat> he trained their hands so that they could fight. So they lived in this difficult place and they had to be prepared, they had to be ready. And if we were to put this in a New Testament context, we would say that they were given the armor of God, they were given helmets and shields and swords and shoes and belts and all of the things and a breastplate, everything they needed to fight. And it's also interesting that as Abram got involved in the midst of this five against four king war, that he probably didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew he had to go out and he had to fight and he needed to do the right thing by his brother. We, don't, we aren't told how many people were in these armies of these different kings, so we don't know exactly how many he was fighting, but certainly he was way outnumbered, way, way, way more than 318. And I find great similarity here to the situation with Gideon, if you remember uh, in the book of Judges, the Lord had called and appointed Gideon. Gideon was a very timid man, not a man of war. In fact, he was hiding in a wine press when God called him. And as the Lord called him and, and set him as leader over the armies, the Lord took his then army of about 32,000 men and even then Gideon was going up against an army of 135,000 men. And the Lord took his army down piece by piece to 300 men. Go back and read the story starting in Judges chapter six. And it was amazing what God did. And the Lord said to Gideon there in Judges chapter seven, the people who are with you are too many uh, for me to give the Midianites into their hands lest Israel claim glory for itself against me saying my own hand has saved me. And so God said he would not share his glory with another. And so God has Abram in a very similar situation, 318 against how many, we don't know, but certainly thousands. Even if you said 318 against 1,000, the odds are still against you very significantly, three to one. Much likely there were, much, there were many more than that. But we know, as we, even as we read through and we understand what's happening in this situation, Abram had learned a very important lesson when he went down to Egypt. The lesson was not wasted on him. And he knew that he wanted to make sure that God got the glory and God had been speaking to him there in the wilderness at his altar. 
And so Abram would not boast of any victory. He wanted everyone to know and he wanted himself to know and his family to know that the Lord was his help, that the Lord was his shield and that the exploits of men meant nothing. One commentator said this, Abram was separated but not isolated. He was independent but not indifferent. He was a pilgrim and a stranger in the land, but that was no excuse for inaction. For when he heard about his nephew Lot, he took action to go and to rescue him. While believers must not compromise with the unsaved in matters of spiritual walk and ministry, they may cooperate when it comes to caring for humanity and promoting the general welfare. When you see that people are in trouble, you don't ask them for a testimony before helping them. Sacrificial service is one way of showing the love of Christ to others. If Christians don't carry their share of the common burdens of life, how can, it, how can, it be, how can they be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? You see, we should get involved with what's happening in our world, and yes, we should be there to be salt and light. And, and Paul even says in the book of Philippians, he says to be lights in the, in the midst of a wicked and a perverse generation. And so Abram did that and he went out, he took his 318 trained men and verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So Abram went and he brought back Lot and the goods that belonged to him and all the women, all the servants, all the people. But the interesting thing here is that we find as we read through this, there's nothing mentioned of Lot being grateful to Abram. There is nothing mentioned of Lot uh, saying, you know, thank you and I shouldn't have gone there and, and all of that instead it would seem by what we read that Lot went straight back to Sodom after this whole thing happened. So Abram had learned a lesson from the Egyptian experience, but not only did Lot not learn the lesson, but he already hadn't learned the lesson from a very severe situation where he and his whole family were taken, they were caught up in a war, and he lived in a place, as I read to you those names, a place of burning, a place of destruction, and a place where people were living entirely for themselves and all they cared about was their own pleasure and their own values and their own ideals. There was not a single person, we will discover later, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God would have looked at and said was righteous, except Lot. Peter tells us in the New Testament that Lot was a righteous man. Peter tells us that Lot's righteous soul was vexed by where he lived in the place of Sodom. And here's the thing that we don't understand, but it probably applies to some, if not many of us. How can those of us who have a righteous soul, meaning we've been saved, we've been born again, the Spirit of God is within us, how can we tolerate living in sin? You see, we do live in a world, and, and Paul even said, you know, I didn't call you, you know, God calls us to be separate from the world, but not isolated from the world. God calls us to have lives that are holy, but he hasn't called us to be out of this world. He hasn't called us to go form monasteries and become monks until the coming of the Lord. 
Until the coming of the Lord, we are to be salt and light in the midst of the crooked and the perverse generation. You see, we are to let our light shine. Jesus talked about this, you know, a city on a hill. Don't light your lamp and put it under a basket. Let it shine. And so Abram went, he let his light shine, but Lot went into this very wicked situation, had no intention of being salt or light where he went, and instead lived as a righteous man in the crooked and the perverse place that he was in, but somehow he allowed himself to be caught up into it. We are not told that he practiced what they practiced, but it would seem by his silence that his silence often condoned what they were practicing, even though he himself was not practicing it. You see, we can't be silent. We can't just allow ourselves to be sucked into the wave and say, well, you know, it's just the world, just the way the world is. You know, God has set us here for a time, for a place, for a season. And I don't think that the words of, of Queen Esther should be lost on us for such a time as this that God has put us here in this place. Verse 17, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him, that is, he blessed Abram and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And, he, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. So both the king of Sodom and the king of Melchizedek came out to meet Abram. And when they did, they came with very different messages. They came with very different purposes. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness. King of Salem means king of peace. And we find here that Melchizedek, this, this man strangely came on the scene out of nowhere. He's never mentioned before. He, was a, he wasn't a part of the battle or the war. And yet here he is, a king and a priest. Now something we need to know about the Bible, about the Old Testament, is that kings and priests were separate. They were never the same person. That was actually forbidden in the law. You could be a priest or you could be a king, but you couldn't be a king and a priest. But this man, Melchizedek, manifests seemingly out of nowhere, comes and he is a king and a priest. And we are told that he is a priest of the most high God. And I'm encouraged by this because this reminds me of that situation with Elijah. Remember after he had uh, cast down the prophets of Baal and, and slain the 450 wicked people? And then Jezebel came after him, the queen, and said, I'm gonna have your head on a platter. I'm gonna take your life after what you've done to my prophets. And so then all of a sudden, this man of God who had great fervor as the spirit of God came upon him and he performed this incredibly mighty feat of standing up against the evil. Then because of the queen's word, he became a, a fearful just a jittery kind of a guy and he fled to a cave and as he's hiding in the cave just going woe is me Lord you know you've left me out here by myself and then the word of the Lord came to him in that cave and do you remember what that word was as the word of the Lord came to him he says don't worry I have 7,000 more who have not bowed the knee to Baal 
You know, and God always has someone else out there, doesn't he? And here we have this King of Salem who comes, this priest of the Most High God. And I'm sure Abram probably felt alone. He probably felt like he was the only one there in Canaan. He, he and a few of his family were the only ones who worshiped the one true and the living God. And here God brings this, this king of Salem, this Melchizedek, into his life, a priest of the Most High God. And this is the first mention of a priest in the Bible. This is significant for us because of who we will discover that this man Melchizedek is. And the title, Most High God, is the first time the name of God, that is El Elyon, appears in the scripture. And this stress that the Most High God is far superior to the Canaanite gods or the false gods and the idols. And he also was identified, he, he said that God was identified as the possessor of heaven and earth, no doubt referring all the way back to God at creation as the one who spoke the world into existence. And then we are told that this king of Salem, this Melchizedek, now keep in mind a king. This king came out with bread and wine to serve those to whom he came. Kings didn't do that. Priests would do that, but kings wouldn't. And as he came and he brought the bread and the wine, doesn't this just strike you as the communion elements? that our Lord Jesus Christ took and implemented and said, this is my body and this is my blood and this speaks of the new covenant. And the, keep in mind, this predates the Passover. Moses hadn't come yet. He wouldn't come for another 400 or so years. And so this king comes and he brings these communion elements and he comes out to serve Abram. Now, 900 years later from this point, King David wrote these words in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What was he talking about? It was a prophetic messianic scripture that was looking forward to the son, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so David is telling us that this appearance of this man Melchizedek was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. A thousand years later, from David's time, in Hebrews we find, uh, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7. So Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said, but it was he, God, who said to him, Jesus, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And also he says in another place, quoting Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, referring to Jesus. And then if you go and read uh, Hebrews 6, 19 through chapter seven, you will see a whole litany of references there as the writer of Hebrews tells us very specifically that this Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as he uh, speaks here in Hebrews chapter seven, it says, uh, for this Melchizedek king of Salem, priest of the most high God who met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram gave a 10th part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So right here, the scriptures tell us that. Without father, listen to this, Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, 
having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So he goes on to say that this Melchizedek was the first priest and the first king. And as we just read, uh, no lineage, no father, no mother. What does that all speak of? It speaks of the eternality of the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we are in the book of Genesis chapter 14 and we're seeing our first uh, Christophany or theophany, that is the appearance of Jesus Christ. And he comes out doing what? He comes out serving. And he comes out to bring refreshment. And in essence, he comes and he brings the first communion to the first people. And so very clearly, Melchizedek is a type of Jesus Christ. And we see here that Abram recognized that this Melchizedek, whoever he was, was truly superior to himself. And in that moment, he felt compelled in the presence of God to just give him a tenth of all that he had as a tithe to give, to bless, and it was an act of worship. And this, of course, is the first mention of tithing in the scriptures. Abram is worshiping the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus now. Stay with me. In John chapter eight, I wanna read this to you. Jesus interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. They said, are you greater than our father Abram, who, Abraham, who is dead? and the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Abraham." Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That scripture, John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad is referring to this very passage in Genesis 14. Melchizedek the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus is saying, that was me. That was me talking to Abraham. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing how God did that? This was the very day that Jesus referred to, that he met Abraham. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. So the king of Salem, Melchizedek, came out and he had a message of righteousness, a message of peace. He came out to serve. He came in the name of the Lord. He came to offer what was then uh, not even known to them as com communion elements, but he brought bread and wine, blessing and sustenance. And now the king of Sodom, as he had come out to meet Abram, why did he come? He said, hey, look, keep all the stuff. I'll let you keep it. Just give me the people. And if you look in your notes there, you'll probably see the, a little mark beside the word persons and you'll see in your margin that it says souls. Why would the king of Sodom come out and say, give me the souls, give me those people? Who does this sound like? Who is it who demands the souls of people? Isn't it 
our arch enemy? Isn't it Satan? Isn't it the God of this age? Isn't it our adversary? Who acts and thinks like this? Satan himself, the one who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, this king of Sodom was embodying in a sense the spirit of Antichrist. But Abram said to this king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten. So whatever they ate while they were you know, eating the stuff, okay, they ate that, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Let them take their portion. And so Abram had learned not to touch God's glory. He knew that God had given him the victory. He knew that God had provided for him. And Abram had determined by this point, remember after uh, when, when the Pharaoh sent him away with riches and goods, he was like, man, I don't want any of that stuff. I don't want anything that doesn't come from the hand of God. I wanna know that my blessing comes only from God. Anything that this world wants to give me, I don't want any part of it. I wanna give glory to God and I don't want anyone else to be able to lay a hold of me and say, look, I gave you stuff, I made you rich, and I will make you beholden to an earthly person. No, Abram says, I want God to be the Lord of my blessing. Abram lived by the blessing of the Lord, not by the bribery of the world. So now God's covenant with Abraham in these last few minutes. After these things, the word of the Lord, verse 15, <clears throat> chapter 15, came to Abram in a vision saying, listen to this, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. <clears throat> How the Lord blessed Abram. Do not be afraid. Anytime we see those words in scripture uttered by the Lord or an angel, or someone like that to a person, it's because there is fear. And so Abram was trusting God, but yet there was still fear in his life. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Now God, of course, spoke these words directly to Abram, but I think we can safely say this morning that God is speaking these words to us, can't we? that he is saying to you and to me this morning, do not be afraid, fill in your name. I am your shield, I am your exceedingly great reward. In other words, God is saying to us that he's enough. Do you believe that? Do you accept that this morning, that God is enough? Not only does this remarkable verse contain the first mention of the word, word, but it also introduces for the first time in scripture the words vision and shield and reward, and even more significantly, this is the first of the great I am's of scripture. I am your, your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Uh, there's a lot of firsts here where God is just kind of opening it up now. But Abram, verse two, said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer? You see, Abram is now questioning, but he's not, it's not the questioning of, of unbelief or disbelief. You know, we've seen examples of this before. For example, when the Lord came and appeared to Mary and he brought the word to her that she would be the mother of, of the Lord. 
and that she would you know, be pregnant by the Holy Spirit and all of that. Remember, she had questions, but her questions were not questions of doubt. She was just saying, well, Lord, so how are you gonna do this? I mean, I believe it, but this is a pretty fantastic, amazing thing. How are you gonna do this? And the Lord, of course, answered her. But then we also find that when the Lord came uh, to Elizabeth and Zechariah, Uh, As God spoke to Zechariah in the temple, when Zechariah asked his question to the Lord, he asked the question from the point of view of unbelief, and of course the Lord made him become mute for nine months until he had believed the word of the Lord. So we can ask questions of God just as Abram did here, but we can ask them from the point of view of faith or we can ask them from the point of view of doubt and unbelief. Abram asked the question just saying, Lord, what will you give me? You know, you said, you said you're gonna bless me. You said that you're going to bring an heir. And right now, as it stands at this point in my life, uh, Sarah and I are beyond all of this. The only heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, and he's not even a blood relative. And so he's saying, is it Eliezer? And then Abram said, look, you've, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, no one born in my house is my heir. How's this gonna work, God? And behold, verse four, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall, be, shall not be your heir. So it's not Eliezer, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And we wish that he had heard that because later, what did he do with Ishmael? We'll find out in chapter 16. Then he brought him outside, God brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Previously, God had said to him, the number of your family of your descendants shall be like the sand of the sea or like the dust. Now he's saying, look up into the heavens. And he's trying to get across to Abram. You can't count it. You know, people have tried to count the stars but at best all they can do is estimate. And all the numbers out there are wild, but no one knows, right? You know, when you, whenever you have an opportunity to go to the beach and you look at the sand on the beach and you think Abram's descendants was going to be more than the sand of the shore, then you think about all the beaches and all the world and all the grains of sand. And obviously the Lord is simply saying, no one can count it. God's blessing of Abram was going to be so abundant. In fact, I would encourage you if you wanna try this, next time you're at the beach, just pick up a handful of sand, put it in a jar or a baggie and take it home and try to count the grains. It's impossible, isn't it? It's impossible to do. This is the blessing of God. And it says here in verse six, and he believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him, Abram, for righteousness. The first mention of the word believe. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament, in Romans 4, in Galatians 3, and James 2. All three times it looks back here to Abram, and it talks about the issue of by grace through faith, and that it's through faith that God accounts his righteousness to us. Abram was a type of all who would ever be saved, the principle always being that of salvation by grace through faith and righteousness. Verse seven, then he said to him, I am the Lord 
who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How will this happen? And so God says, verse nine, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and he placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. We wonder as we read this, what is this kind of weird thing that is happening here? Well, this was called in that day, cutting a covenant. And it was a common practice. So when two people entered into an agreement, now this went way beyond what we might call a business contract. This was a covenant. And a covenant cannot be broken. So this is evidence that Abram believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness because what God is about to do here is going to blow Abram's mind and ours as well. Now God told him to take one each of the five acceptable animals, a cow, a sheep, a goat, a pigeon, and a dove, and they were to be slain by Abram and laid on this altar and, uh, which was the ground, and the slain animals were placed in two rows as the animals were cut into, and their carcasses were split or filleted, as it were, and they were laid out so that there was a path between them. And they, uh, the makers of the covenant were to pass between these two rows of these carcasses. And so the idea is that as they passed between these two carcasses, that they would take their oath and whatever they were setting up as their agreement or their covenant or their oath, they would both take that oath as they walked between the animals. And as they did, did that, the idea was that if I ever default, if I lie, if I don't uphold my part of the, the bargain, then my fate will be as these animals. In other words, my life will be taken. And I'm saying here, if any of this happens, I will willingly give my life. I will allow myself to be put to death for not fulfilling this covenant. This is how serious the agreement was. Now when, verse 12, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, God speaking, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will be afflicted, they will afflict them 400 years. And we know that this is kind of a round number because we know later it actually turned out to be 430 years as the uh, Israelites went into Egypt and then they were afflicted and then they came out. And verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Speaking of the Exodus. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. Remember when Abram started this journey, he was 75, and we know the end of the story that he lived to be 175. Uh, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Back in Genesis 14, 13, it was the Amorites who had caused a lot of that trouble, and so God was holding them accountable and said that they would eventually be judged. Um, and then, you know, we know that as we follow the story that the Amorites were indeed judged later on by God through battle, actually through in the book of Judges. 
And in verse 17, And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and when it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. So now here's the situation. God told Abram to prepare this sacrifice. He did. He prepared the cutting of the covenant, and he got it all ready. And then as evening fell, uh, the vultures began to come, and then Abram had to fight them off because God had not yet come to enter into the covenant with Abram. And then Abram, as he fell into this deep sleep, we're told that, that fear and horrors fell upon him. And it's interesting, as you read about this and study it, there's a wide variety of opinions as to what all of that means. But the most plausible one that I read that I thought was very interesting is simply this. That um, through the time that uh, God would, would later fulfill his covenant through Abram, that there would be times, of course, that people would come against the Hebrew people. There would be wars, and there would be people coming against them to imprison them. And even to this very day, of course, people <coughs> hate Israel, don't they? The whole world is against Israel, this little tiny state, this little tiny country. And most believe that this was sort of a vision that God gave Abram to see that there, uh, the birth of these people and how God would bring these people into existence and, and watch over them and deliver them for all these years wouldn't be without turmoil and wouldn't be without people coming against them. So that this was sort of symbolic of what would come against the people. But as Abram was there having this dream and, and, and this dream and this vision, God began to speak to him. And he began to tell him, uh, you know, about the Exodus and all of those things. But now, as it came to pass, when it was dark, this smoking oven and this burning torch passed between those pieces. So Abram was asleep, and basically he couldn't move. All he could do was watch what was happening. You see, Abram was not allowed to enter in and to pony up for the agreement, so to speak. And this smoking oven and this burning torch was the very presence of God passing between those pieces. The very Lord himself made himself sort of incarnate, if you will, in this, this burning oven and this, this torch. It was God who made promises to Abram and not Abram who made promises to God. There were no conditions attached. The covenant of grace came from the generous heart of God. The smoking oven and the burning torch. The smoking oven reminds us of the pillar of cloud representing the presence of God in Exodus and the smoke on Mount Sinai, the cloud of God's Shekinah glory. Uh, the burning torch reminds us of the, the pillar of fire. The glowing furnace moved, gliding down the aisle lined with the animal parts that glistened in the fire's light. Surely an ecstasy gripped Abram's soul. He had not been asked to join in the pageant, to pass with God between the pieces. It was God and God alone. This was an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God, with astounding condescension, was symbolizing that if he were to break his word, he would be cut apart like the butchered animals. It was an acted-out curse, a self a divine self-imprecation guaranteeing that Abram's descendants would get the land or God would die. And God cannot die. So as God acted out this thing before Abram and Abram was not allowed to participate, Abram saw that God himself had committed. This, this is the, the answer. This is the sign 
that Abram was asking for. And God condescended to Abram and said, man, I'm gonna bless you, my word is good. Now let's fast forward a few thousand years to the cross of Jesus Christ. As this theophany happened where God appeared yet again to Abram. God says to us through the cross what? As we watch, as we watch our sin being judged on the cross, what part do you and I have in that covenant of grace? None. Just like Abram had no part. There was the shedding of blood, there was the cutting of flesh. There was a covenant that was made. And that day on the cross of Jesus Christ, there was the shedding of blood. There was the brutality of flesh. And God entered into that covenant with man through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. A divine covenant is not a mutual agreement on equal terms between two parties, but rather a divine promise assured. God was putting his deity on the line as a confirmation of his oath to Abram. Abram did not haggle with God. He didn't establish contractual terms. Abram could not break a contract that he never signed. Isn't that the way it is with us? What contract did you sign when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? By what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abram? How could it have been displayed more vividly? The only way would have been for the figure to become a reality, for the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of the covenant-breaking children of Abram. And that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the covenant curse fell completely on Jesus so that the guilty ones who placed their trust in him might experience the blessings of the covenant. Jesus bore the punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and we might be his people. Verse 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he lists out the names of all these other people here. Fellow believers, I am convinced that our view of God is everything. Some Christians, because they believe in the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham, have a big God, but others have a small God. I believe that what you think about God is everything. Because if you have a big God, then you have a God who, through his son, redeemed you to be his people. You have a God who will give you the land. You have a God who will lead you through much suffering into the kingdom. You have a God who will do miracles in your life. You have a God to direct your life. You have a God who will answer prayer. You have a God to whom you must give all your love. The question is, is your God the God of Abraham? Or is he a God of your own puny imagination or your sinful reductionism? If you have the God of the Bible, you will be able to stand tall even until the sin of our culture has reached its full measure. Today, who do you believe in? As we were singing this morning, 
And then this next song as we close is about this as well, but this verse of scripture kept coming into my mind and here it is as we close in Isaiah 54. No weapon formed against you shall prosper and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. You see, the Lord is for us. He is not against us. He has said, I will be with you forever. I will never leave you or forsake you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This same God who unilaterally formed a covenant with Abram, the same God who came down in the form of Melchizedek to appeal, appear to Abram and to offer him the first communion. This same God is the same God who came to us on the cross through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. No weapon that's formed against you shall stand. Today, if you're in a place of doubt or despair or depression or discouragement, the Lord is with you. The Lord is for you. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is your God. And he is here for you and with you this morning. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that. Amen. Lord, we come this morning and we thank you and we bless you because you are so very good to us. And Lord, were we Abram, those same things would have been spoken to us. And we know, Lord, that by extension, you give them to us this morning. The promises of God are yes and amen. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to walk through this life wondering and defeated and no hope and no purpose. And just as you spoke to us last week about vision and faith, Lord, may we be filled with vision. May we rise up with faith as you speak to us, as you minister to us, as you fill us up, as you remind us that although we may not be given all the answers, we are given you, your very presence, your life with us. And God, we're so thankful for that this morning. Lord, for any this morning who are listening who have never believed in you, like Abram, who have never believed in and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, and we, we ask that today that they might turn their hearts toward you as an act of their will and that they might say, Lord, come into my life. Lord, forgive my sin. Apply the blood of Christ on the cross of Jesus to, to my sin. And Lord, I turn and I walk from my ways and I walk in your ways. And so this morning, would you bring and extend salvation this morning to any who are crying out to you right now? And this morning, if you are praying in that way and you are inviting the Lord into your life and you are turning from yourself and your ways to his ways, then please let us know so we can pray with you and encourage you. Lord, fill us up this morning to all the fullness of Christ. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and may we walk in the love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and sing this last song. May the Lord be with you and keep you, and may he rise up to meet you in these days ahead. Amen.